fiqh, tafsir, hadith, fiqh, and other related subjects. As the new branch of the seminary opened in Chatham, Ontario by the name of Darulum Canada, he relocated to it and completed his graduation there, getting ijazat to teach the various subjects, most notably the six authentic books of hadith, namely Sahih Bukhari, Sahih Muslim, Surah Al-Tirmidhi, Surah Nasai, Surah Ibn Majah, and Surah Abu Dawood. Uh, without any further ado, I would like to call upon Dr. Matins. Can everyone please, before starting, everyone please come in as close as possible. There are so many gaps that can be seen from here. And there are so many people waiting uh, outside to come in. And there are many people who went to uh, re like refresh themselves. So there are still many, many, many people coming. Please come as close as possible. Fill up all the spaces. Uh, there is so much space on my right hand side over here. Please keep coming in, please keep coming in. Uh, those who are on the walls, if you do not require to lean against the wall because of any back injury or any pain or any sort of such, then please do come off the walls and join the larger group, come closer. And let us leave the wall for those who truly need it. Jazakumullah khairah. Alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salamu ala ashrafil anbiya, habibina wa nabiyina wa maulana muhammad, wa ala alihi wa ashabihi ajma'in, amma ba'd. Faqad qadullahu ta'ala fi kitabihi al-aziz, a'udhu billahi minash shaytanir rajim, wa ma kana li mu'minin wa la mu'minatin idha qadallahu amran idha qadallahu wa rasuluhu, wa rasuluhu amran an yakuna lahumul khiyaratu min amrihim wa man ya'sillaha wa rasuluhu faqad dalla dalalan mubina sadaqallahu al-azim I know it's late and I know by the time I finish it'll be perhaps past some of your bedtimes. I'm an emergency physician, and we work nights. Sometimes it'll be 2, 3 o'clock, and at night, you're tired, you're sleepy, the caffeine's worn off, and then you get a phone call. Somebody's been shot. There's a heart attack. They'll be there in 2 minutes, 5 minutes, 10 minutes. All of a sudden, you wake up. The sleep, it goes away. And you're ready. Inshallah, no one's dying tonight. <laughs> but this is a very important topic. And because of its importance, I want you to wake up. I want you to realize that this is something that if you understand it, your eyes will open. There will be other things that come to your mind. And you should have light bulbs going off as you listen. As Ulama, as people of da'wah and tabligh, as fathers, as mothers, as community members, we have to realize, and our akabir have realized this in the past, and we for some reason have become a little stagnant, is that as people change, as their mindsets change and their thinking changes, we have to recognize that. We have to be the first people to recognize that. If you don't, what will happen is 10, 20, 30 years down the road, you will have said, oh, if only I realized, then I could have made a difference. Or you're preaching to people, you're giving them that way, you're trying to raise them, and you realize, we're not connecting. Why? Because my mindset is different than their mindset. And we have to understand this so that we can talk, we can relate, we can understand. And more important, we can prepare for it. We can protect ourselves from it. One thing I hope to get across to you tonight is that you realize that you're not immune. I'm not immune. Maybe like many of you, I grew up in the United States. I went to public school, elementary, middle, high school, college, all of that. And what I didn't realize until afterwards, until I came into the madrasa system, that I had a heavy amount of programming done to me. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reward my teachers 
they spent a lot of time deprogramming me. Even till this day, I will tell you that I'm not entirely deprogrammed. And I want every single person here to open their eyes and realize, when I speak, I don't want you to think about someone else. I want you to think about yourself first. Ask yourself, have I been... What's my thinking? What's my programming? So tonight we'll talk about Islam and liberalism. There's a tension here. I'm sure we all know of it somewhat, but I want to open our eyes to it in a more technical sense, to see what the problem really is. And then perhaps you can help me with the solution because I'm not entirely sure yet. But at least we'll try to identify the problem tonight. I'm going to throw some terms at you. Bear with me. I'll repeat them so you understand them. The first term is comprehensive doctrine. I'll read it and I'll explain it. Comprehensive doctrines are a set of commonly held beliefs that are related to a wide range of values and moral commitments. They concern themselves with beliefs about personal virtues and normative political goals related to the ideal organization of society. What does that mean? It means that every single person has a doctrine, has a framework, has a mindset by which they view the world. You, no one in this room is an exception to that. If you're an IT guy, you'll understand it's the programming by which we interact with the world. All of us have had the experience we wear glasses, sunglasses. Sometimes you have those yellow tints. My daughter has a pink tint because she loves pink. And you wear the glasses long enough, you don't see that color anymore. Right? We've all had that experience. You wear sunglasses long enough, you don't see dark anymore. In the beginning, it was dark, it was dim. Then you don't realize it anymore. We all wear lenses by which we view the world, and we may not be aware of those lenses. That view, that framework is called a comprehensive doctrine. It tells you why things are the way they are, how you should interact with it, what is good, what is bad, how should we be morally, how should we be politically? So tonight will be mostly about that. I'll start off talking about liberalism. Let me be very clear, get this clear from the very beginning. I am not talking about political liberalism. I'm not comparing a conservative to a liberal. This is not what I mean by liberalism. Everyone clear on that? So if I say liberalism, don't think Democrat. We're not on the same page. I'm talking about philosophical liberalism. What is that? Again, let's read the term, and then I'll explain it. Liberalism is a philosophy. It's a comprehensive doctrine. It's a philosophy that starts from a premise that political authority and law must be justified. Meaning, if I put a law on you, I have to prove the necessity for it. Otherwise, you should be able to do whatever you want. If citizens are obliged to exercise self-restraint, and especially if they are obliged to defer to someone else's authority, there must be a reason why. I'm not obliged to follow my father just because he's a father. I'm not obliged to follow the government just because it's a government. I'm not obliged to follow Allah just because he's Allah, under liberalism. Restrictions on liberty must be justified. What does that mean? Very simply, liberalism is the idea that people have inherently the liberty to do whatever they want. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reward Mawlana Ahsan. I was listening to his talk very closely earlier. He set the stage. I want to expound on that. I want to go deeper. So liberalism is the idea. It's the comprehensive doctrine, the framework that I can do whatever I want by the very virtue of being a human being. And if you're going to put a law on me, a rule on me, a restriction on me, I can't be this gender or that gender, I can't identify with this, and I can't... You better tell me why and prove it to me, otherwise I should be able to do whatever I want. I want to tell you a story. Let's think about liberalism as a, as a person. Right? The concept of liberalism that I just explained to you, the philosophy, let's think of it as if it was a person. This person was born in the time of the Greeks, ancient Greek civilization. In that time, you had the greats, the, philosoph the philosophers, Plato, Socrates, Aristotle. They laid the groundwork for democracy. 
They laid the groundwork for the republic and so on. So as a person, this person, that's where he started to grow up. He had his experiences, he formed his ideas, and then as he continued to grow, he came across Christianity. Christianity spread throughout the world, so this person, he now becomes indoctrinated by Christianity. So his view changes a little bit. He doesn't change, still the same person. But he was Greek philosophy, then he became somewhat Christianized, and that was brought into it. Then Christianity had a lot of difficulties. It broke off from the Orthodox Church, then Protestantism came around, there was a huge fight in Europe, and then after that, this person was, in, in, was uh, we'll say, influenced by all of that. Then that person, he continued, and we'll, talk, we'll go back to this a little bit. You know, let's do it now. What happened? What was the trauma in the church for this person? The trauma was that the church was massive. It ruled. It told you what to think in Europe. It was immensely powerful. Even now, if you go to the Vatican, it's covered in gold. They took it from places, but they had that kind of power and control. It told you what to think. You can do this, you can't do that. You can think this, you cannot think that. So we saw friction, Galileo, Copernicus. I'm hoping the people who studied will, you know, maybe remember these names somewhat, right? Especially if you went to public school, then you knew how evil the church was made when it said Galileo was wrong. So there was conflict. The church was limiting development of scientific thought. And if you didn't follow, it said you're excommunicated, you're out. So it made this idea that science and religion can't come together. This is their history. This is the history of the liberal. He wants to advance in his scientific development, and the church says, no, nope. If you do, you're out. We'll kick you out. No one will talk to you. No one will marry you. You'll be out of society. So there was a big problem there. At the same time, with the church, there was also the monarchy. It was a feudal system. You had lords in, in one area. They were governed by people above them. And then, then you had the king. And every single one of you was owned by the king. If he wanted to send you off to war, he could do it. Your life was his. He spent it however he wanted. He wanted. So on one hand, you have the church, which is limiting your ability to think. And so people fought back. The Protestant movement split off from it. Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King Jr., not I have a dream Martin Luther. Martin Luther, the founder of Protestantism, he, he said the Catholic Church was wrong. It has deviated. In our words, we would say they started to do shirk. And he broke off from them. And he set the groundwork for church and state need to be separated. This is their history. So church lost. And when they lost, they lost big. Now the entire Europe saw them for who they were. They were restrictive. They didn't allow advancement. And so they said, you know what? Because of your crime, church, you're off in the corner for, forever. You cannot be a part of the state. You cannot be a part of the nation. You go there, you preach to whoever you want. We are living here. The monarchy, the same thing. The people, they fought back against the monarchy. The kings are done. You saw the coronation recently. Just a big hoo-ha, but it means nothing. People make fun of the king. His entire family is, is drama. So the same thing happened to the monarchy. The monarchy lost, and nation-states developed. We'll come back to that in a sec. So then, the church, gone after a conflict. Monarchy, gone after conflict. And this is now developing the mind of this liberal person. Next thing is his own identity. That identity was formed with this conflict with Islam as well. Let me come back to that. Before I, before, let me finish the other thought first. 
So the church limited your ideas, got rid of them. The monarchy limited who you were as a person, got rid of them. And then they developed these nations. Before, there weren't nations. They were just empires. So they got rid of them. They formed little states, little democracies, little republics, that kind of stuff within Europe. And it gave them their identity. Then after that came the Renaissance, the Renaissance. That formed their idea, their, 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 their thinking. After that came the Enlightenment. This is when all the French started, French philosophers, German philosophers started saying, we have the right to this, we have the right to that. Atheism, other isms started to come into play. And then eventually that movement worked its way into the United States. And now the U.S. probably more so than France and Europe and Germany sets the stage for the liberal mind. What is it that you should think and how you should think? Meaning, the comprehensive doctrine, the framework by which liberalism sees the world, this is its history. Is that clear to everybody? This person went through a lot over centuries, millennium, a lot of trauma, a lot of conflict that brought them where they are today. Now you understand why they don't trust the church. Now you understand why you can't even speak about monarchies or one leader because they had a bad history with that. And then came along Islam. They had a bad history with Islam as well. But Islam gave the liberal an identity. In other words, if they didn't know who they were, are we Christian or are we not? Are we subjects of the king or are we not? Are we German or are we French? They weren't sure what they were, but what they did know is we're not Muslim. Why? Because he had several conflicts with the Crusades. So you see here on this map, all of purple is the people that would eventually become liberal. And then that which is yellow, orange, and pink is the Muslim world. All of those different lines are how they came to attack the Muslim world. The Vatican made use of this. The Christians made use of it. The monarchs made use of it. If you want the people to calm down and not fight against you, give them an enemy. Islam was the enemy. You guys are arguing over who's German and who's French and who's uh, Austrian. Guess what? We're all not Muslim. Let's go fight them. And we see the Ottoman Empire, how far its reach came. You can see here all the way up into Budapest, at the doors of Vienna, all the way across Algiers. And this doesn't even talk about what happened during the Islamic Empire when they had made their way all the way up to the doorsteps of France. So we defined for them who they are as well. Now what about Islam? We too have a comprehensive doctrine. Right? We too have a framework by which we see the world. And as Mulana Ahsan was speaking about, we have a way by which Allah has given us to approach that. But look at our, our origins. The same way I talked about that liberal who grew up, who was born in Greece, and then worked his way all the way through the ages until he landed in America today. Where do we come from? What is the Muslim history? The Muslim history starts with Sayyidina Adam. He was the first. He was our Nabi. He was the first Nabi. Our history starts from there. Allah created him, guided him. Allah gave him a wife. And then from there, we move forward. Sayyidina Nuh. Moving forward. Ibrahim. Ishaq. Ismail. Moving forward. Musa. Isa. Alayhim salam this is all our history. Each one bringing a sharia, but at the same time talking about the same aqidah. Every single prophet from Sayyidina Adam to our beloved Prophet Every single Muslim from our prophet to every single one of us today, we have the same aqidah. It hasn't changed from the time of Sayyidina Adam. That has been handed down. That is how we saw the world. That is our philosophy. We had different sharias coming through the ages with each prophet. And now we're with 
the sharia of the Prophet ﷺ, which is the final one. It colored who we are. This is how we see the world. In fact, you could easily argue, and scholars have, that our comprehensive doctrine, our worldview, is more comprehensive than theirs. Why? Because Western liberalism tells you how to view the world. Islam tells you what is it that exists in the world. What exists outside of the world. We have our aqaid, we have our beliefs, we have our fiqh. This is what's moral, this is what's, what's immoral. This is what's good, this is what, bad, what is bad. We have our tasawwuf, our tazkiyah. How to be a better person. How to f- complete, solidify your aqidah so that it's yaqeen. And how to do your fiqh in such a way that there's pure ikhlas in it. And ta'abudullah ka'annaka tarah. That you get to this level. So what is the path of the Muslim? The path of the Muslim has been from the time of Sayyidina Adam, each step of the way, every Nabi, every Rasul, we believe, we know. You know, even I have a problem saying we believe in Allah. Because belief still denotes that there's a possibility of falsehood. It's not a belief, it's dogma. Allah exists. We acknowledge it. This is how we view the world. Prophethood was our guidance. In the Akhirah is what holds us, is what keeps us accountable. This is how we see the world. So by now what I've done for you is I've created in your mind two alternative competing or comprehensive doctrines. Each one with a different history. Each one with a different framework. Each one with different programming. Each one wearing different lenses. We have our own heritage. We have our own conflicts. We have our own cultures. We have all of these things that make up who we are. Everyone following? Right? The emergency is still there. You're still awake. You're waiting. Alhamdulillah. Another term for you. Secularization. Secularization is a process by which secular spheres are carved out of an area that was once non-secular. We're coming back to liberalism. Coming back to the framework of liberalism. What is secularism or secularization? Secularization is when the liberal reaches into the non-liberal space and says, this is mine. What is it? It is, if the church says, this is good, this is bad, secularization reaches into it and says, no, this isn't part of morality anymore, this is mine. I will decide what can be done here and what can't be done. So anything that is religious, moral, that has values to it, secularization is the carving out of that for itself. Let me give you a great example. Homosexuality. Throughout the ages, what did the church say? What did the synagogue say? What do we say? We say that homosexuality is a moral issue. It's an issue in which there is right and there is wrong. So when we look at it, when a Muslim with his heritage, with his lenses, looks at it, he sees Allah has said this is moral, uh, sorry, immoral. And so, hands off, we stay away from it. We don't advocate it, we don't support it, we don't do anything, we only condemn it. What does secularization do? What does the liberal do? It reaches into that and says, Homosexuality is not a moral issue anymore. What is it? It's a human human rights issue. It's an issue of freedom of expression. Right? What does liberalism say? It maximizes liberty. I should be able to express myself however I want. I should be able to have the right to do whatever I want. I should be able to identify, I have the right to do that however I want. You see what happened there? Before it was moral or immoral. Now secularization came and said, no, this isn't yours to judge. This is now in our sphere. It is my right. It is my liberty. So we are talking on one perspective. We're saying, and let's not even say we. Let me be very frank. There are many people in this room. You might be one of them. There are older people in this room. Guaranteed, your children are some of them. That do not see 
homosexuality as a moral issue. They see it from the lens of liberalism. So when you bring them to a place like this, and they're listening to the Mulvis say, this is haram, Allah is displeased with it, they'll think to themselves, why does Allah care what I do? Isn't it not my freedom? Isn't it not my right to express myself? From their perspective, from the framework of liberalism, it makes complete sense. We should not be surprised that they've gotten to this point. When they go further in the next few years, we should not be surprised. It is consistent with their worldview. It is consistent with their framework. It is not with ours. Make sense? Are we doing questions at all? Okay, that's fine. So. Now, we have to really ask ourselves a question. What framework do I see the world by? Am I wearing the lens of the Muslim? Or am I wearing the lens of a liberal? And I know most of us haven't thought about that. We just assume we're Muslim. And we are, alhamdulillah. We pray, we fast, we, we believe in la ilaha illallah. But the question is deeper than that. What is your programming? When you look at the world, are you looking at it as a Muslim or are you looking at it as a liberal? Many people are foundationally, in their foundation, in their framework, are liberal. But in their identity, they're Muslim. I want you to think about that for a second. In their framework, in their programming, they're liberal. In their identity, they're Muslim. And I want to say they, but really I should say we. Secularism is foreign to Islam. It's not a concept that we really have in our deen. Because what Islam tells us, what is right and what is wrong. There is no sphere that you can separate out and say that this is outside of the deen. It doesn't exist. So Europe, in its liberal heritage, sees it as one way. And the fact is, many of us who are Western educated, especially our elites, this is how they think. In Europe, you can see where it came from, right? You guys understand, I explained it to you how they developed over time. It came from the bottom and worked its way up, kicked out the church, kicked out the monarchy, fought the Muslims. But it came over centuries and built up. Even till this day, there is a distaste for the church. There is a distaste for monarchy. And there is a distaste for the other one too. In the mind of the liberal. And we can see where it comes from. In the Muslim world though, liberalism and secularization has been put on us as well. But in a different way. Whereas in Europe, it came from the bottom in the Muslim world, it came from the top. Who brought it? Just yell it out. Who brought it? Colonizers. They brought liberalism. They brought secularization. They imposed it on us. It's not native to us. It was imposed upon us. And that's why it never really fit. It causes a lot of conflict. Or what they have done after the period of colonialization is that they have installed rulers, Western educated, who now are, see the world by that framework and they rule over us. Right? Prime Minister so-and-so, King so-and-so, where did he get educated? United Kingdom. But he's le leading over the Muslims. Pakistani Prime Minister, I, I don't even know who the Prime Minister is right now, but from whatever, before. Where did they send their kids to be educated? America and the United Kingdom. So when they came back, do you think they were leading by a Muslim framework or by a liberal framework? Now we understand. People of the prior generation, right? I want to say uncles, but I think I'm one now. I'm, I'm at that age. And I can't think of myself as that anymore. But the people that we used to call the uncles, this is how they saw the world. Oh, did I do something? Okay. I want you to understand how they saw the world. They saw the world as... I'm going to run over time. Inshallah, forgive me. This is really important. I want you to understand. They saw the world 
in the 1900s, in the 1920s, going into the 1940s, they witnessed the entire world change in a way it never changed before. A hundred million people plus were killed in the world wars. Brutalization on a scale we have never witnessed. You know, they want to say Muslims are violent? Not even close. Over a hundred million people dead. Can you even imagine that? Brutalized the entire world, brought them into their own conflict. But in the end, there were victors and there were losers. And the victors were admired, are admired. So we saw that even among the Muslim world, they saw the victors and they said, if we want to be strong, we need to be like them. And so you saw many of them say, let's go to the West and get educated. These Molvis, they're holding us back. Why? The same way, they're making a false analogy. Oh, in, in Europe, the church held them back. Therefore, it must be the ulama holding us back. This is their history. It's not our history. But false equivalence being made. So what does this end up doing? It ends up leading into conflict. The result is that Muslims ended up having a dislike of deen, dislike of ulama, the people who brought them the deen. It's really ajib for me to see that someone sits and he says, I love the deen, I love the Islam, I love Quran, I love hadith. But the ulama, no, no, they're the cause of our problem. Why is it ajib? Who taught you the Quran? Who taught you the hadith? When you wanted to understand the tafsir, who wrote it? It's not that you sat in front of the Prophet and got it. The ulama transmitted it to you. There's this love and hate relationship. And it makes a lot of sense if we view it from the liberal framework. Why they hate the church. Why they hate the people who represent deen. And they brought that into our framework. Two different frameworks, two different ways of seeing the world. And it brings hypocrisy, it brings conflict. What does it do? It disconnects them from the deen. They favor the dunya because they want to be like the powerful. And I'm not saying, don't get an education. Don't get a good job. I'm not saying that. I'm saying wear the proper lenses. Have the right framework. What ends up happening is that there's a loss of iman. There's a loss of morality. Right? If you have the framework of liberalism, your morality doesn't come from religion. It comes from philosophers. It comes from the enlightenment. It comes from the framework that you live by, that you see, secular values. I'm going to have some quotes here. So just, you know, listen carefully. Sayyid Hussein Nasr is an academic. He said, while in Europe, the development towards secularism was more of a bottom-up process, driven by civil society over a steady period of time, in the Muslim world, it was the opposite. The imposition of secularism in Muslim lands was rushed, top-down process by elites who inherited both their power and penchant toward cruelty from their former colonizers. Kind of what I was saying. So then, they ran into a problem. And by that I mean Europe and the liberal world. Is that, you know, Africa, no problem. You know, we took care of them. We're ruling over them. We've put in dictators. We're set. Other parts of the Muslim world, I mean, other parts of the world we've taken care of. These Muslims were having a problem with them. They're not buying into it. They keep fighting back, they keep resisting. So let's find another way of doing it. Because if we come to them with a comprehensive doctrine that's liberalism, we're running into a problem, and that is they have their own comprehensive doctrine, and that's called Islam. So this is the other way. The other way is political liberalism. And what this means is that you change the politics so that it fits liberal ideals. Install a democracy. Tell everyone that you're free to do whatever you want. That if the government inputs a law, then we will justify it in some sort of rational way. Keep your Islam at home, in the masjid. Don't bring it into politics. We don't want to hear about it. 
Right? I don't know about you, but I have this experience at work. There are Muslim physicians who don't want to say salam to you. I'll call them on the phone. It's on the phone. It's just me and him. There's no one else on that line. Assalamu alaikum. Oh, hi. What do you need? Why? You have to understand it. Why? These are people that go to the masjid. They identify as Islam. If I were to say salam to them in their home, they would say, Wa alaikum salam. I'd get the response back. But in, this, in the hospital, there is a secularization. My Islam, my salam, that's for outside of the hospital. In this professional environment, there's no room for this. I'm not, I mean, I am making, a, a, I am sort of making a judgment, but that's not my intent. My intent is for us to understand. So political liberalism, a political framework that is neutral between such con controversial, comprehensive doctrines, largely restricted to constitutional principles, meaning politics, upholding basic civil liberties and the democratic process. So this is a way of let's install a government, let's install politics, and we'll tell people, keep your deen at home. This is an easier way than to come in and say, all of you have to become liberal. But it runs into problems. What is that problem? Number one, political liberalism still comes from comprehensive liberalism. It shares a heritage. It shares foundation. It shares the same framework. It leads to a split identity. Are we Muslim only at home? Are we also Muslim at work? Am I supposed to put on different lenses before I leave the house and take them off when I come home? And then there's disingenuous discussions. What do I mean by this? This is an interesting thing. If you tell someone, you know, sometimes we make this argument to people. Right? Someone says, you Muslims, why are you against homosexuality? Just, just because we were talking about it earlier. And I say, you know, science tells us, logic tells us. But the fact is, that's not why we say that. We say it because through wahi we know it to be wrong. So even if the other person brought me a long list of scientific articles, brought me a long article on logically why it's okay, at the end of the day, I would still say it's wrong. So when I have this discussion with him saying scientifically, logically, I'm being disingenuous to my own self. Because the reason I disagree is because my framework tells me it's wrong. And my framework is based in Islam. If we want to have an honest conversation with one another, we will have to have the conversation that from your framework, LGBT is right. But from my framework, it's wrong. You have to respect my framework. I don't have to come on your field and pretend like I believe something I don't. We do this. We do this in other areas. For example, a person says, we should have, so if a liberal says there's freedom of religion, what's his basis for saying such a thing? The Constitution is based on liberal doctrine. His basis for saying it is because liberty, right? I should be able to do whatever I want based upon my framework. My choosing of a religion is based upon my liberty. I will do what I want. It's consistent. Make sense? If I say, La ikraha fi deen, that when it comes to choosing, accepting, or choosing a religion, there's no force in it. I won't force you into it. I'm coming to the same solution, same conclusion, right? I'm saying you have freedom of religion. What's my reason for doing it? Is it based upon liberalism? Is it based upon your liberty, inherent liberty that you have? No. It's based on the idea that Allah has given you that freedom. Same conclusion, different framework. Make sense? Now take this and multiply it on, on everything else that we have. Freedom, freedom of speech. Freedom of choosing a job. The right to do something. We might agree on certain things, but our foundations are different. And that's important to understand so that we understand how we're seeing the world and that we're not disingenuous to ourselves. So for the sake of time, let's keep moving. Raja Bahlul is, um, I believe, British philosopher, politician. They are to act as if religion does not matter to the, way, to the way one relates to other citizens. 
But what kind of self is that which self-consistently self-consistently can switch between two identities. He's questioning what kind of a person can actually be this in the morning and this in the afternoon. At one moment thinking that religious beliefs and values are the most important things in life and the next moment acting as if they do not matter. Some of our jobs, I know in school for sure, for those guys who are in college and high school, we are mandated to support LGBT. You're not free to say what you want. You're, uh, most, half the time, you're not even free to think what you want. You will have to prove in some jobs that you have done something that supports inclusion. Did you attend a parade? Did you donate some money? Did you fight for the cause? What kind of a person at home has one framework that he lives by and at work has another framework that he lives by? This is a problem. And other people have realized this as well. This is Ali Alawi. He was part of the Iraqi government that the U.S. installed afterwards. He himself, firsthand, right? The U.S. came in, knocked out the prior government, killed a million people, installed another government, and the person in that very government, he noticed, the prized tolerance of the Western societies has an adverse side in the form of an intolerance or disregard for other civilizations, which may not subscribe to the universal nature of Western values. He himself realized that the Western liberal mind says, we tolerate everyone. But this person in his own government position realized, no, they don't. We're not free to be Muslims. We're not free to have our worldview. We have to make ourselves subservient to theirs. Karl Popper is also a famous uh, philosopher, political historian. He's speaking on behalf of liberalism. So I'm bringing you proof. This is what they say. It's not hidden. The right to force remains to suppress intolerant philosophies if they cannot be countered with rational arguments. In other words, in our context, if these Muslims do not follow our logic, if these Muslims don't understand our reasoning, we have the right of force to suppress them. We should therefore claim in the name of tolerance the right not to tolerate the intolerant. You guys see the irony there? We should therefore claim, this is you know, a political philosopher of liberalism, we should therefore claim in the name of tolerance the right not to tolerate the intolerant. So either you come along willfully or we will bring you forcefully. And when we bring you forcefully, we're doing it for your own benefit. Trust us. I'll skip over this for the sake of time. So let's get to the, the meat of it. You guys now understand where liberalism comes from? You understand how they view the world? you understand that their view is also that the rest of the world should see it that way as well. And if they don't, we will try political liberalism. And if that doesn't work, we will teach their elites and their educated people. We will bring them to our countries. We will educate them. We will give them scholarship. They will go back home and they will lead their countries. We will do what we can to bring them along nicely. If they don't, then we will do it by force. We'll do it in the name of freedom and liberty, right? We'll go to their countries. We'll destroy it in the name of freedom and liberty because although we may kill some people doing it, in the long run, we're actually helping them. We're freeing their women. We're unenslaving their men. We're opening their eyes to the beauty and the grandeur that is liberalism. I'm being facetious, but obviously, I'm not that far off the track. The main problem is, and I've already hinted at it, is that liberalism is a comprehensive doctrine. Islam is also a comprehensive doctrine. Liberalism tells you how to run your government. It tells you what's right, what's wrong. It takes things out of the sphere of morality and religion. Islam also tells you what's right, what's wrong. It also gives political guidance. It also tells us how to view the world. This is a problem. Everyone see the problem? Right? You can't have two 
programming in the same computer. So that's the problem. Here's another political philosopher. He's actually um, American. He says, Islam constitutes a systematic and coherent ideology, just like liberalism and communism, with its own code of morality and doctrine of political and social justice. The appeal of Islam is potentially universal, reaching out to all men as men, and not just to members of a particular ethnic or national group. To us, this sounds wonderful. To them, it's a problem. It's competition. It's a threat. So what do we do? What do we do about this? So as I had mentioned, some Muslim modernists in the 1900s, for example, uh, Abdul Afghani, uh, Rashid Rida, and some others, they noticed how powerful the victors of the World Wars were. And they said, they started thinking that if we want to be powerful, then we will have to make Islam take on some of the aspects of liberalism. So they started advocating for this. They said, we need to teach Muslims how to be more Western. We need them to see the world in the frame of justice and liberty as they see it. So one is, let's take on some of the liberal framework. The other is an Orientalist lens. The academics among the Orientalists, and some of them are Muslim as well. Just because you're a Muslim doesn't mean you're not an Orientalist. If your teachers are Orientalists, and you work for them, and you work in their institutions, you're probably an Orientalist as well. Not 100%, but probably. So when you start seeing the world in that lens, then you will give those sort of answers. And inshallah, in my next talk tomorrow, and actually they're both tomorrow, I'll, bring, I'll come back to this. I'll come back to this idea of we need to change, we need to realize that we're not seeing the world as Muslims should from our heritage. So Ibrahim Musa is an academic. He is Muslim. And he wrote, the success of a modern Islamic human rights theory depends on the extent to which modern, I spelled it wrong, modern Islamic thought would be open to a revisionist or reconstructionist approach in philosophy and ethical orientation. What is he saying? He's saying that if Islam wants to have a modern human rights theory, it will have to revise, reconstruct some of its morality. And if you knew his background, you'd be even more surprised. Habermas is a, is a German philosopher. Religious consciousness can be accommodated as long as it is modernized to be compatible with liberalism and expressed in terms familiar to secularism. What's the solution according to them? Right? They see the Muslim problem. The solution according to them, actually before I say that, John Locke, which is a name I'm sure many people probably remember from school, maybe you don't remember who he is exactly, but our government, our constitution, our Bill of Rights, is based a lot on his theory and his philosophy. He's sort of the father, one of the founding fathers of liberalism. He took Christianity at the time, and he changed it, he represented Christianity in such a way that it became under liberalism. So what happened? The church was kicked out. He said, Christians, if you want to continue living in our liberal world, you will have to change your morality so that it fits under our umbrella. And guess what? Did they do it or did they not? They totally did it. And as many of our speakers, our kind of more intelligent da'is today have noted, so did the Jews, so did the Buddhists, so have the Hindus, except us. We really are a problem. Alhamdulillah. But he's saying that if religions want to continue then they will have to find a way to become compatible with liberalism. Not liberalism compatible with them. We, if we want to continue in the liberal modern world, we have to become compatible with liberalism and secularism. People are justified. So coming back, what if the Muslims say, no, we're not going to change. We're not going to make our morality compatible. 
Well, then Joseph Raz, who's an Israeli political scientist, he said, people are justified in taking action to assimilate the minority group at the cost of letting its culture die or at least be considerably changed by absorption. And we really have to ask ourselves, is this what's happening to us? Again, let me be very clear. Many of us are sitting here thinking that we look at the world as Muslims and we identify as Muslims. And I have no doubt that we are Muslim. I do question whether or not we really see the world with the Islamic lens. Or if we're changing in the way that they want us to change. Shadi Hamid is also an academic, but I like this quote. He said, Muslims do not want to risk their spiritual well-being and embrace liberal or non-traditional positions. And liberalism is not the natural human disposition. Right? Two really good points. Number one, we like who we are. Allah has made us this way. It is consistent with the teachings of the Anbiya from the time of Sayyidina Adam all the way to the last prophet. It is consistent with not only the Salaf, it's consistent with the Khalaf, all the ulama that have come since then. I'll tell you, coming back to what I had mentioned earlier from my own personal experience, you know, this is the path Allah chose for me. I joined the madrasa when I was, I don't remember, 29. 29 years old. By that time, I'm sure people like Mufti Azim and others already had 10 years under their belt of imamat and teaching. I'm just starting. That was 29 years of growing up in the liberal framework. And then coming into the madrasa was deprogramming. Because now you're in the madrasa, you're surrounded by people who only think in the Muslim framework. Why? Because they inherited it from their teachers, who inherited it from their teachers, and their teachers going all the way back, way back to the Salaf and the Prophet So I had many moments where I sat there and they said something and I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. And it wasn't until the lenses changed that now I'm like, that makes complete sense. What do we do? This is the million dollar question. What do we do? And this is the last, last slide as well. I, I just threw up three different things. And if you have a better idea, feel free to pull me to the side and tell me. Number one is something called modus vivendi. Modus vivendi basically says, let's call a truce. We tell the liberals that you have your framework, we have our framework. I'll respect you, you respect me, let's just call a temporary truce for now. Leave me to do what I do, and I will leave you to do what you do. It would be good if it worked. But conflict and wars have shown us that it doesn't. And we also know, you know, before, when we saw that map of the Muslim world and the European world, we saw where the borders of conflict were. Before, conflict was physical. Today is ideological. They don't have to invade our lands. We live in theirs. It's an ideological battle. They don't have to come up with arms. We don't have to fight at all. We can shake hands. We can live together. But now it's a battle of stamina. Whose ideology is going to continue? The two can't come together. They are directly opposed. Who's going to win this conflict? I don't want to be pessimistic, but I'm pessimistic. We are, we are fish out of water. I want you to realize this. We are fish out of water. Muslims are meant to be in an environment that is conducive to Islam, to conducive to Iman. One of the amazing things in, in, that I saw in college, you know, the Muslims that I went to college with, many of them walked out on their deen like this. Or they could identify as Muslim, but would say things that were completely kufri, they had no idea. But I would see these people from Muslim countries who would come as students. They would drink, they would gamble, they would eat haram. But if you said anything against Islam, you're getting punched. You see the difference? 
The Muslim from this country would sit there and listen to all the abuse in the world of Islam, of the Prophet and do nothing, feel nothing. The Muslim who didn't follow his deen at all but came from a Muslim country, if you said anything against, if you dared say anything against the Prophet you better run. Why? Because the environments that they came from, I don't know, Wallahu Alam today, I'm talking about 20 years ago, more than that. The environments that they came from were conducive. They were fish in water. It bred their Islam, it bred their Iman, it made it strong, even though they may not be practicing, but the belief was there and the love was there. We are fish out of water. You know, I, I walked into the building today before when I stepped up, I'm from New Jersey, we don't have anything like this. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make this a place of nur and make it a place where, you know, one of the beautiful things about Dar es Salaam, and I'm not being paid at all, uh, one of the beautiful things about Dar es Salaam is that it it's in Chicago. And Chicago is the heart, the center point of North America. I don't know if you've ever looked at a map. Look at Chicago, look at all of North America. It's literally in the middle. It's the prime location for that that faith of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to come down and then spread from here. I mean, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make it happen. We are fish out of water and we have to realize that. And if you don't, you will suffocate. And if you do, then you'll surround yourself with water, at least little bubbles of it, so that you can keep your iman going. So modus vivendi is one solution, but like I said, over time, it's likely going to fail because we actually live in an environment that is a completely different framework. The other option is political co-opting. What does this mean? And please, if you disagree with me, just talk to me nicely, don't get mad at me about it. Political co-opting is the idea, and Muslims tried this for, for a while, 20, 30 years, where let's get into politics. Let's run for offices, let's take the school board position, let's try to become governor, and then we will change. But experience tells us that more likely we will change in the process. An interesting thing happened a year ago. New Jersey, where I'm from, is one of the most liberal states in America. Our Muslim leaders decided to side with the Democratic Party. So they all became Democrats. They put their kids into Young Democrat Association. They send him to the, the Capitol building and take pictures. Look, you know, he's, he's with the Democratic senator and whatnot. And so they aligned with the Democrats completely. Then, recently, our governor passed a law that was very comprehensive in the education of transgenderism, LGBT, the acceptance of it in the school districts. So from the elementary years moving forward, you will learn about inclusivity in public school. Muslims obviously became upset. They went to our Muslim leaders and said, you need to do something. This is not okay with us. The Muslim leaders found themselves in a very difficult situation. What was that situation? For years, they raised money, they supported, they ran for the Democrats. Now is your opportunity to take that leverage and do something for the ummah. Were they able to do it? No, not at all. The Democratic Party is like, there's a door. You know, thank you for the money you raised. Thank you for your time. Thank you for all the effort you put. But nope, there is a door. What do you think those Muslim leaders did? Did they leave the Democratic Party? Nope. The problem with political co-opting, it sounds great. Run for elections, run for party, be involved. It's the only way you're going to be able to help the ummah. Fine, but at what cost? Is it worth it? That's the question we have to ask. And the last, the Diobandi model. Obviously, as you've seen, I am incredibly indebted to my teachers, and I'm incredibly indebted to the Diobandi ulama. In 1857, there was the mutiny of 1857. The British government came down, not the government, it wasn't the government, it was the, the East India Company, came down along with the British government harshly f against freedom fighters in India. And this is India meaning 
the subcontinent, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, all of it. They massacred tens of thousands of ulama. They brutally fought them, beat them down till they, there was nothing left to fight back with. Our ulama, remember, conflict then wasn't ideological. It was, but not to the same extent as it is today. Our ulama fought, they, ran, they fought for independence. It didn't work. They lost that battle. What's the steps that they took? They said, nine years later, they founded Darul Ulum Diuband. They took this path that because we can no longer fight in an effective way, we will open madaris and we will teach the deen. We will preserve it. We will advance it. We will open up madaris, makatib. We will spread the deen throughout the land. We will encourage everyone to follow the sunnah. Right? Because we're talking about frameworks. Framework means you have to be convinced up here. And being convinced up here means that you have to be Muslim outside, you have to be Muslim inside. Sometimes people say, what's wrong with you ulama? Why are you hung up on the beard? Why are you hung up on the dress? Why are you hung up on the topi, the kufi? When we have so many other problems. But one of the hikmah that I realized of our akabir is if you want to change a people, it's not going to work simply by teaching the deen. You have to change their culture. You have to hold on to their culture. You have to make them distinct if you want them to live as fish out of water. Right? The Indian subcontinent is not most... Is, Muslims are a minority. They always have been. Again, I apologize. Please forgive me. I know I'm well over time. Is it okay if I continue? Muslims went to South America. You will meet South Americans with the name Salma, Omar. Where did they come from? They had ancestors who came from the Arab world. Why are they not Muslim today? I believe it was Jamal Badawi, I'm not entirely sure, but he had written something in one of his works. Uh, he had visited Australia. And decades ago, there was a large population of Afghanis who had moved to Australia. They came to Australia, they completely assimilated. And he wrote that you can go and you can find their masajid, their makatib, all closed and empty. What happened? Not the same example, but a good example nonetheless. Andalus, Spain. When the Spanish came down and kicked the Muslims out. Did all of the Muslims leave? No. Many stayed. How many of them are Muslim today? Almost none. In fact, most of the Muslims you'll find in Spain today have come recently there. Why did they lose their deen? Now look at the subcontinent. Minority of Muslims. Hindus have been in the majority. After 1857, the East India Company was dissolved and India became part of the British Empire. Are the Muslims still there? Yes. Very much so. What went right there that didn't happen in the other parts of the world? You're not going to meet a person from India whose name is Umar, who's not a Muslim. You're not going to meet a Salma from like South India who's not a Muslim. They all are. Something went right. And in my opinion, what went right is that our Akabir realized that if we're going to live as fish out of water, we have to take steps to protect our comprehensive doctrine, our framework, our lens. And the way to do that is number one, establish your institutions of deen. Number two, give the people an identity. If you tell them, no, you can look like everybody else. You can dress like everybody else. You can go to school like everybody else. Well, guess what? They're going to become like everybody else. But if you tell them, no, you're different in your aqidah. You're different in your dress. You're different in your values. You are not like them. Then inshallah, hundreds of years from now, there will still be Umars and Salmas in America who are Muslim. 
So the problem I've outlined to you, the solutions, I don't have one exactly. This is where my mind goes right now, the last one on this list. And it's the best that I've come up with after thinking about this for a very long time. And inshallah, if you agree with me, then I want you to understand this. Ask yourself the question that how much of liberalism have I taken on? How much of it have I kept out? Am I Muslim through and through and do I see the world that way? Are my children? Is my community? If they're not, or even if they are, what can I do to keep them that way? It's, I work with a lot of youth. It's very common for me to... I would say it's the norm among Muslim youth to accept LGBT and transgenderism. It's the norm. And I'm sure everyone who's young here will agree with me that this is the norm. And that's just one step. In a, and the reason they accept, accept it as the norm is because it's liberalism. They've bought into it. That's how they see the world. They don't identify as liberals. They still say, I'm a Muslim. But the framework is there, and it's very much so there. So, inshallah, I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to give us hidayah to guide all of us. And as we go into the next day and the day after that, that we begin to see all of these issues that we will deal with from a framework that we can now sort of understand where we, our foundation lies and how we can approach it. وآخر دعوانا الحمد لله رب العالمين جزاكم الله خير السلام عليكم ورحمة الله